Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast podcast, the comedy politics show that doesn't like to get straight to the point, as that's how you get stabbed. I'm Tina Duyeb, and core designer of a cartoon before any features have been added, Sajid Javid, has resigned from his position as Chancellor, because, ever the job's worth, he was never not trying to prove that departmental cuts needed to be made. The Prime Minister and child of a Dalmatian pelican and silage dump wagon, Boris Johnson, told him that he needed to fire his team of aides, but Javid refused and stepped down, which is very out of character for a man who's usually happy to have people removed without any reason or evidence as to why. While you might often think that a reshuffle is something you'd do to get a better hand to play, the British government has once again defied the norm by swapping all its cards for lesser ones in order to provide a real flush, just toilet rather than royal. Or perhaps I've got this wrong, and the shuffle in the term cabinet reshuffle refers to the dance, with its dragging sliding step, and to reshuffle merely means to do it all over again until you've successfully dragged and slid the country all the way backwards. I mean, how else to explain the momentary respite the PM gave the country by doing away with human flotsam Esther McVeigh with one hand, before using the other to scoop up the sort of jetsam that's usually thrown overboard in horror, Suella Braverman? Why try and save the sinking ship when you can merely stack all its debris back on board and end suffering by speeding up the submergence? Yes, out goes Energy Secretary and Mother Andrea Leadsom, probably on account of how much energy she drained and wasted just by existing. Out goes Northern Ireland Secretary and Dominic West, but if he died in a horrible way, then come back as a zombie, Julian Smith, because the government seemed to assume that the position of Northern Ireland Secretary should be a power-sharing agreement too, between, you know, every Tory MP for all of five minutes each to make sure no one gets attached and then it's easier to let the country go once Brexit starts. What if Christopher Biggins joined the dark side, Jeffrey Cox, is no longer Attorney General, because it's only fair that he share his advice on how to be unlawful with the rest of the world. The aforementioned Esther McVeigh, the evilest of the Pokemon, has lost her home at the housing department, which seems fair as under her most people didn't get one to lose in the first place. And Culture Secretary and Postman Pat Extra Nicky Morgan has gone, showing that actually changing in order to stay relevant isn't really a working plan at all. 
and of course the Javed, who couldn't cope with the threat of his aids being taken away by the government, giving him perhaps the first glimpse ever of what it's like having to deal with the DWP. Javid's resignation, while he may have been pushed towards it, supposedly wasn't planned, and he's gone when the new government's budget is due in just a few weeks. If he'd had any real conviction, he'd have written go fuck yourselves and left it in the red dispatch box for his replacement to find on budget day. Or better yet, just a note with, I'm afraid there is no money. And who might Saj's replacement be? Well, it's seemingly out with the cold, in with the coup, as all the new recruits are a motley bunch of yes people who have a track record of unquestionably following the orders of the Prime Minister and the rat that sits in his hair and helps him cook up a recipe for disaster, Dominic Cummings. The epitome of this is the new Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who looks like BFG the young and in the city years and is best and well known for appearing instead of the Prime Minister in a number of the election campaign debates, in the way you might put on an inadequate out-of-office auto-reply while you're actually sitting at your desk. Sunak previously worked for a billionaire-owned hedge fund where his former partner was involved in a multi-million tax avoidance scheme. So Rishi is perfect for the job of post-Brexit Chancellor where his entire job will be redirecting funds that should have been used for public good but are instead hidden away on an island that only the rich will have access to. Sunak had tweeted in December a picture of him and Sajid Javid going to see Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker saying, great night out with the boss, Jedi Master. Visually, it did look like Yoda was taking Jar Jar Binks on a date, but otherwise neither could be Jedis when they both clearly were very happy to work for the Empire. Still, I bet they enjoyed that film as Sunak and Javid until last week have shown no problem ignoring glaring plot holes to instead loudly repeat hollow fan service over and over again. The plan is now that they'll be joint advisors for number 10 and number 11, because why have two teams being shit at two things when one can fail to do both all by themselves? Even if the country's finances won't be, we can at least have solace that the points of failure will be very economical indeed. One of the other particularly troubling appointments is the new Attorney General Suella Braverman, whose name makes her sound like a superhero, but if she was, she'd see someone was in trouble, pop by to tell them to sort it out for themselves and then piss off again. Braverman doesn't like human rights, doesn't think courts should have any power over Parliament and is part of a controversial Buddhist sect. And they must be controversial if her beliefs seem to involve reincarnating outdated authoritarian ideals and harming all living things so that it limits the chances of her coming back next time as quite such an idiot. Yes, the government have again pulled their classic move of making you think the cabinet are the worst people in the universe until you see that the people who replace them are much, much worse and can only have been plucked from another bizarro dimension where rock bottom is merely the surface level everyone resides on. Of course, certain cabinet members such as Home Secretary and Grendel's mother Pretty Patel and Foreign Secretary and Giant Blister Dominic Raab have been allowed to stay as it's impossible to find anyone worse for their roles than a man who doesn't understand what an island is and a woman who uses 1984 as a policy guide. In the new cabinet's first meeting on Friday, Johnson told them to focus on delivery like a team of takeaway couriers turning up with whatever shit the chef has made regardless of what was ordered. The PM did a call and response with his ministers, asking them how many hospitals they were going to build, as they all shouted, 40! How many new nurses? 50,000! Because if you know anything about rhythm, adding in, except the money we have is only for six new hospitals and 20,000 of the nurses are ones that are already there, takes a musical skill that I'm not sure any of them could manage. Actually, the call and response chant that would work best for this new cabinet of stooges would just be singing, I don't know, but I've been told, over and over again without any other lines of the song. 
The big worry is just what they're going to be told and then automatically do without question, as newly recruited Conservative aide and lymphoma with a face, Andrew Sabisky, has been found to have openly supported the use of eugenics, suggesting that compulsory contraception would stop a permanent underclass. Pretty abhorrent views, though nice that Sabisky is testing his theory out by being so grim no one will ever sleep with him, and then hopefully he'll be bred out of the gene pool. Sabisky is one of Cummings' recruits after he called for misfits and weirdos to work as parliamentary aides, and he obviously got the job after fulfilling both of those criteria. In other blog posts he's written, he's suggested that there are racial differences in intelligence, which I suppose could explain why so many white people are unable to understand the concept of racism, and that women's sport is more comparable to the Paralympics than the men's, which I'd argue has some truth in it, in that neither gets as much funding, and both sets of athletes have to work even harder to get where they are because of arseholes like Sabisky, ultimately making them better. I'd assume finding someone in the Conservatives that's into eugenics isn't that uncommon, which is why so many of them look inbred. But number 10 are refusing to sack Sabisky despite pressure from, well, anyone with a pulse, and most concerningly, the Prime Minister's spokesman wouldn't say if he agreed with the aid or not, and just that Johnson's views on the intelligence of black people and eugenics are well known. Which is true, and very worrying. On the plus side, if the government were to do some sort of horrific forcing through of a cognitive enhancer for children, as one of Andrew Sabisky's blogs suggests, then at least in the future we wouldn't have dickheads like him or the Prime Minister in charge as they wouldn't exist. Actually, as I record this, Sabisky has resigned from his position after all the scrutiny, but are we going to see more and more shuffling incel potato people getting hired? Just before the reshuffle, Dominic Cummings said that the cartoon PJ Masks would do a better job than all of the then-cabinet put together, which isn't untrue as PJ Masks is a show about superheroes who fight crime at night, whereas most of the Conservative Party aren't even interested in fighting it during the day. But it is a cartoon, and you have to wonder if Cummings' sense of reality is even more warped than we thought. And also, if someone could very quickly make a cartoon where the protagonist, potentially children in hats so Dom can identify with them, they fight the shit out of authoritarian eugenics-loving fascists and put loads of money into the NHS. That'd be brilliant. Thanks. Over in Brexit, sorry, not Brexit negotiations, things are going as smoothly as we were promised they would, with the UK government complaining that the EU's trade demands are unreasonable and tougher on the UK than they have been on other countries. Yeah, but did any of those other countries spend four years calling the EU Nazis, letting people burn their flags in Trafalgar Square and repeatedly making up lies about them? I mean, I don't remember. Maybe Japan got really feisty at some point during their seven-year negotiation. I don't really recall anything. The EU are asking for the UK to align with its trading standards as well as impose rules on our tax regime and it all seems a lot less likely that Boris Johnson will get Brexit done and more that Brexit will do him and Britain. The French foreign minister who looks like skin wrapped around a shrug said that he expects the UK and the EU to rip each other apart in negotiations which may be more damaging to the EU but only because we're already messily divided in the UK so I can't imagine it'll make much difference anymore. Meanwhile, the US are looking to start trade talks with the EU before the UK on account of Johnson allowing Huawei to be part of our 5G setup. Still, though, we've always got the Faroe Islands and I'm sure we'll be fine on a strict diet of, um, hang on, uh, let me check, frozen fish and uh, chilled fish and dried fish and salted fish and aircraft. Ooh. In other news, a number of Tory MPs have warned the government not to pick a fight with the BBC as there have been rumours that Number 10 wants the licence fee scrapped and a subscription service in its place. But of course, that'd make it tricky next election if people have to pay for their unfiltered campaign material. 
The Prime Minister could face a parliamentary probe after Johnson declared that he had accepted a gift of £15,000 of accommodation for his private holiday in Mustique over Christmas, but the donor he specified, Carphone Warehouse co-founder David Ross, has denied it was from him. It has turned out the truth to form from Ross's business that something was lost in communication, and Ross's spokesperson has now said it was him. But you still have to wonder why he did it, and if we'll soon be seeing government funnelling investment into very unhelpful teenage staff in upsetting shirts, or if they think they can just level up the country by paying a lot of money for upgrades. And lastly, after Storm Dennis battered the country this past weekend, but not in a good fish and chips way, several areas of England and Wales suffered from dangerous flooding for the second time in a week, and over 500 homes were hit, prompting many to wonder if we're going to reclaim our fishing waters post-Brexit by just having them within the country instead of outside. Despite this, the Treasury's figures reveal that only 1.5% of the infrastructure budget is being spent on flood defences. The rest is going on things like roads and railway lines, which is pointless as boats, submarines and sharks don't need those. But hey, maybe I'm being cynical, and maybe the government's bigger plan is just to use eugenics to give us all gills and be done with it. What's kicking, chickens? No, you're right, I'll never say that again. Um, I know this bit is usually uh, far too long and filled with nonsense waffle times and admin stuff, but this week it is going to be super brief, like Batman's pants, as the interview uh, on today's show is a long one. Oh, but a good one, but a long one, but a good one. Um, so this bit is just full of a very quick thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. That was it. It's all done. Um, followed by the usual ask for reviews, donations and all that, which I've tried to get some help on from the youth who understand online engagement and all that. So here you go. Here is the youth uh, asking you for all the things I usually do. Can you say, please review the show? Please uh, show. Can you say, yeah, please review the show? Please the show. And can you say, donate, donate to the Kofi? Kofi. It's in the Kofi. And uh, donate to the Patreon. To the Patreon. And tell people about the show. And the show. <laughs> I expect the Patreon and Kofi accounts to explode now and Apple to get in touch saying the show has so many reviews that they're having to store them on the moon. Um, incidentally, after a long, long time of me telling you not to do the Patreon, they are soon to be allowing pounds and euros and others as well as US dollars. So that should make it all easier should you wish to give me one pound a month instead of like now where you have to give me one dollar and then the currency exchange means that costs you your home and then the bank charges you your firstborn as a fee on top of that. So hopefully Patreon soon. Um, also, what should I do with the Twitter and Facebook groups? I've asked this before. Um, I can't remember what you said last time. Probably something helpful. I'm aware that I'm not posting much of anything on either of them other than when this podcast is out and links to that. Um, what sort of things do you want to see on there that won't also take up my entire life doing them? Um, let me know if you have any good ideas. Otherwise, I will trundle along with tedious pod promo, occasional sassy gifts and pointless polls until the internet dies. That is literally it. That is it. That is all the admin stuff this week, all the waffle, uh, because on this week's show, I spoke to Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London, Jeremy Gilbert, all about why Labour lost the election and what they need to do next. And you'll be surprised to hear uh, that they didn't lose because of just one thing. I know, right? It's mad. Um, It is instead 50 minutes of chatting things. Look, I know that's long. I know it's long. I'm aware. I've said it lots already. And I know you don't have time in your busy, busy lives, but just make the time. Come on. This month, has one whole extra day in it so the least you can do is conjure up a few extra minutes seriously give it a go um plus there is a short introduction
introduction to the new cabinet. But first, get this in your lug holes. The Labour Party, so-called because while it should be natural to support them against the constant fuckstorm horror show pissfest that is the Conservatives, it still feels like hard work. After an election defeat in December where 60 of their seats were lost, Her Majesty's opposition now not only need to work out just where they can sit down, but also who the new face of the party will be and what policies will they try to hawk to the public, only to be told they won't work because that would stop people suffering, which is really un-British. The first bit, as in the who new face, is much easier to predict, as we know the new Labour leader will be one of three contenders, as the contest has now collapsed into its final stage. On the left of the party, there's a candidate who will pose a threat to Boris Johnson on account of him spending all the time he could be enacting damaging policies, instead trying to work out just where she is as he's squeaked at from the opposite bench. On the right, there's a woman who will pose a threat to the Prime Minister by suggesting all his best damaging policies before he does. And in the middle, there's a man who's definitely best to take on Johnson on account of him also saying big words and never being quite clear exactly what it is he stands for. Are any of them what the party needs right now? And what exactly is that? Conservative peer, 95th richest person in the UK, a man who loves Britain so much he refuses to pay any tax here, and someone who looks like a misshapen clay bust of Larry King, Lord Ashcroft, conducted a poll of 10,000 people asking them why Labour lost. The top five reasons that people who used to vote Labour gave for not voting for them this time were... Firstly, because of Brexit, which was, as we all know, entirely Labour's fault from the moment that then-Labour leader David Cameron called the election. So that's fair. Secondly, uh, because of party leader and Harfie and corncob Jeremy Corbyn, because wherever you were in the country, he'd definitely have ended up as your MP. Third, mostly, division, because hey-ho, no one likes a math smart-ass. Fourthly, because they no longer represent their traditional voters, which is, of course, self-fulfilling if those voters don't vote for Labour to represent them. And five time, uh, it was because of undeliverable promises, which is obviously not good as that's just stealing the Tories brand. But the same poll said that Labour members agreed that Brexit was the main reason, but then people being misled by the media was second reason, people being misled by the Tories, which is the entire point of the Tories, and that voters were just wrong or racist. But hey, if you will insist on being British, then that's what you're going to get. So, are they all right, or are they all wrong and racist? Or did Lord Ashcroft fill in every answer while sitting in his pants in Belize, while using £50 notes to wipe his balls, while shouting what they could have gone to instead and laughing? Saving children's lives, ha 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 ha, wipe. The fire service, ha 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 ha, wipe. More importantly, can Labour deal with all that now Brexit's out of the way, or is the next leader, whoever they may be, going to spend five years dreaming the impossible dream, fighting the unbeatable foe, and ultimately bearing the unbearable sorrow? And also, much like Don Quixote, have people disagreeing about what it was actually about for the entire rest of time? Of all the recent analysis and op-ed pieces into Labour's election loss, most of which seem to be from people saying, I hate Labour and they lost because they're shit, or I love Labour and they lost because everyone else was shit, the best and most thorough were a series of six articles on open democracy by Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London, Jeremy Gilbert. Jeremy writes for a number of publications uh, for think tanks such as IPPR and Compass, and has actually advised the Labour Party on policy and strategy, though as you'll hear, they've not always listened. Jeremy's most recent book, 21st Century Socialism, was published earlier this month and it's his manifesto for the need of revitalised socialist politics that learn from the past to adapt to contemporary challenges. So I was very chuffed that he had the time to let me ask him all about exactly why Labour lost, what they should do next and their odd power synchronicity with the US Democrats. 
uh, a few heads up before we get into this. Um, one, I talk about four leadership candidates when there's obviously now just three. Um, as we spoke over a week ago when Emily Thornbury was still uh, in the contest, sort of vaguely. Um, there are also a few coffee cup noises and at some point a coffee drinking noise that I meant to edit out. But I've listened through twice uh, and I now can't find it. I know it's there. I've just had to leave it in. So just, you know, listen to it for ambience. Um, please feel free to never, ever write in and complain about it and just do something worthwhile with your life instead. Um, right. This is a very long but it's a really good one. Here's Jeremy. Enjoy. I've been really, really enjoying your articles on open democracy about why Labour lost the election. And I think a lot of the talk that we've had in the last two months from most of the news outlets has been it's for because Corbyn was either weak or dangerous or somehow both. Um, it was the anti-Semitism or it was the second referendum. Uh, your views say that it's a lot more nuanced than that and there's a lot more to it. So are any of those accusations accurate at all? And... Could you maybe, I'm asking a big question here, could you maybe kind of sum up why they lost the election? Sure, yeah. And I mean, before saying all that, I mean, the first thing I would say is just, it's not just that Labour lost, it's that the Tories won. And I think, like, even the way my articles framed it a bit, it wasn't really till right at the end of this long series, I sort of started to realise that in some ways, to say, why did Labour lose is sort of always the wrong question, because Labour nearly always lose. I mean, historically, you know, Labour don't win. So... Um, it's it's sort of just unsurprising. But nonetheless, you know, to have won, yeah, definitely almost all of those factors would, would have had to be sort of addressed um, on, on Corbyn and his leadership. I mean, I think, I mean, in some ways, the sort of tragedy and difficulty for Corbyn was that he had two jobs to do sort of historically, and I'm not sure the same person could ever have done both of them. And one of them was the job of really, as I always put it, to, to rally the left in Britain, you know, to sort of give people a sense of hope and a sense of unity and common purpose, which really just hadn't been done since the 1980s. Um, and he did that very successfully. And he did that very successfully, partly because of his, you know, his genuinely kind of saint-like personality and in his ability to sort of persuade. I mean, really, he was able to inspire different sections and of the left, you know, who had been quite inactive for decades, but still in many cases resented each other for the, really the fallout of the 1980s, uh, to sort of come together and, uh, and work together for a common project. And that was a tremendous achievement. Um, but it wasn't, that required a different sort of personality to the one that was needed to really uh, take on the Tories. And I think the the problem was, I mean, Jeremy's sort of personality and, and his um and I say personality, I, I sort of think it, it's a bit of a dangerous idea. We don't, because I don't really claim to know what he's like as an individual, you know, he, he, uh, on a personal level, and, and not uh, not many of us do. But I would, let's just say the way he operates, you know, the way he presents himself and operates in a public context, which it tends to be conciliatory, and it tends to be involve appealing generally to very kind of mor- moral ideas about why we should make certain political decisions. It wasn't ever going to be very effective up against somebody like Johnson. I mean, what you want up against somebody like Johnson is basically, you know, you want a Bernie Sanders type who will constantly point out that that person on the right is acting in the interest of a greedy, parasitic elite and uh, who are the causes of all our problems. Uh, and Jeremy, I mean, you would think you'd, that Jeremy would do that, but it just it's not his style to do that. So, I mean, the way I always illustrate this, this is a sort of made up example. It's not referring to any ex- real one incident. But, you know, 
if if Jeremy was debating Johnson on on the subject of you know the housing crisis, you would you would think he what you would think he would do, and what definitely like an American left politician at the, the current moment, like Bernie Sanders or you know AOC would do, would be to say, look, the reason there's a housing crisis is because greedy property developers, you know, the landlord class who are represented right there by Boris Johnson have got all the houses. They've got all the houses. That's why you haven't got one, and they're telling you it's because immigrants have. have have taken them and they're lying in their own interests. But in that situation, Jeremy would never make that kind of argument. He would say, if, if asked about the housing crisis, Jeremy would start talking about how you know, how terrible, this, what a moral scandal it was that there are so many homeless people in our cities now, which is absolutely true. And it's absolutely true. And there's no question that that is genuinely what motivates Jeremy and everything he does this sense of like you know outrage motivated by compassion you know for the weakest and most vulnerable in society the trouble is that it's always been a problem for labor and it, and it's not at all something just unique to jeremy you know the labor party historically has nearly always appealed to that kind of language and the trouble is it just doesn't appeal to floating voters especially in england you know where people are motivated by a strong sense of self interest so it was so that kind of moralism, I think, was never very effective, and that so that was part of the problem in terms of the sort of the general issue of leadership. I think the the inability to really inspire people with a set, with a sense of sort of righteous anger at the at the um, on their own behalf so at, at the forces represented by Johnson, and then on on anti-Semitism, well. I mean, the anti-Semitism thing, I think it's always, it, it's, you shouldn't exaggerate how much of a difference it made because it's just not an issue that was ever registered as very salient with huge numbers of voters or, or with, or particularly with many floating voters, really. But I think it did, the anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism issue did become part of the sort of ambient atmosphere which gave a, a, a significant um, chunk of sort of centrist leaning pro-Remain voters a sort of excuse to themselves for not voting Labour. Um, you know, this, we're talking about basically sort of affluent, urban, metropolitan, kind of middle class people who went over, who voted Labour in 2017 and voted Liberal Democrat or Green this time. And I would say, I mean, my own reading would be most of them are not people who in their, ever in their lives have ever really cared much about anti-Semitism and, and were not people who had any direct evidence that any of the charges of anti-Semitism were against, made against Jeremy and the party were valid. But they did have a general sense that somehow Jeremy wasn't representing them and their worldview and their interests as uh, to the extent that they would like him to, because he was always having to sort of straddle the divide between people like that and, and kind of leave voting Labour voters uh, in the North and the Midlands uh, and in Wales. So, and so feeling kind of angry, feeling disenfranchised, but also feeling very, very entitled because they're mostly quite highly educated, illiterate people who've been used for the past 30 years to the Labour leadership really representing them. You know, they, they felt angry and aggrieved. And, and I think for a lot of, I think the anti-Semitism narrative gave them a sort of excuse in in, in some cases um, to go and vote for a different party. Um, I mean, on the bigger issue of anti-Semitism, I think you know we, we you can get into all kinds of questions as to whether the the matter could have been handled better. I mean, you can say that it could, but it was a very difficult situation that and any and any situation could all, almost always have been handled better. Um, and I think. 
you know, there's no question that there were some real anti-Semites, you know, knocking around in the Labour Party who needed to be dealt with. And, the, and there's also no question that it was the issue was used highly, completely opportunistically by some of the, you know, the people, people who to the right of, of, of Jeremy in the Labour Party who were just, who felt that he, you know, they wanted any kind of excuse to undermine him. Um, then... <laughs> And so I said, this is quite a lot to uh, ask you to condense, isn't it? I apologise. So that's so. Yeah, it was um, the other one of your the things that you said in the articles is that Brexit was obviously such a massive issue. Sure. Well, Brexit was a huge issue, and I and I do think that um, I, I, you know there are two different views on Brexit really in the late, on on the nature of the Brexit issue now. There's a view which is quite popular on the left, which says. Uh, we made a terrible mistake in allowing in allowing us to um, in, in being pushed away from the position we took in 2017, which was to say we would implement Brexit in some form. We made a terrible mistake. We were pushed by the right, by the centrist, by the People's Vote Brigade. Uh, and that's why we lost the support of our kind of loyal working class supporters. And there's another view which says, look, you can say that, but it was clear in 2018 that we were completely hemorrhaging support you know, in the cities, you know, from kind of middle class voters who have always been a big part of Labour's voting base. And it was going to be a complete disaster for Labour if we didn't um, shift positions somewhat. So and I think all I would say is you look at all the statistical evidence, all the polling data, look at what was actually happening in the polls and elections in 2018. It's clearly the second story that's true. It's clearly the case that if Labour had had not adopted a position of advocating for a second referendum, then their vote nationally, although they wouldn't have lost as many seats and they wouldn't have lost as many of the seats in places where they that they've held for generations, which which has been very traumatic. The vote really the, the the support for Labour, which is built up in the cities, the university towns, and the South, you know, parts of the South since the nineteen eighties, you know, was just would have just collapsed, would itself have collapsed, and that would have been you know another kind of crisis for the party. No, no way to win in that situation. There's no way to win. And also one of the, the uh, factors I've talked about, I don't think it's been talked about enough, is the implications of our, you know, stupid electoral system. So, you know, under the first past the post system, you know, most, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast probably at least has a reasonable idea that, you know, votes don't get distributed evenly. So, you know, the, you get, you, you, the Greens have got a million votes and got one MP. The Tories, you know, I think the statistics are something like it took 30,000 votes to get a, to get a Tory MP, it took 50,000 votes to get a Labour MP, took a million votes to get a Green MP. You know, we're the only, I mean, hardly any country, I mean, no other country in Europe uses that kind of electoral system anymore. But one of the content, and everybody, and everybody certainly knows this, everybody knows, you know, the Tories got 43% of the vote, but they get like over 50% of the seats. You know, the Liberal Democrats get, you know, 10% of the vote. They don't get anywhere like 10% of the seats, etc. But a, a really important point with reference to the referendum result and the election is that because of the way votes are distributed, leave, leave voters had a majority in literally two thirds of seats. So leave only got 52% of the vote in the referendum, but they had a majority in over 66% of, of seats. So that meant... To the extent that it was going to be a kind of Brexit election, I mean, Leave were always going to win that election. I mean, yeah, as long as it was being fought in that way, and as long as it wasn't the case, as I think it should have been, that parties that were not like committed to sort of hard Leave, you know, co- cooperated with each other in some way to overcome kind of built-in disadvantages. So, 
And the fact that nobody talked about this really, even before the election, it is sort of extraordinary, I think. And it, but yeah, that, so that was a real factor. So, and on top of all that is the very important point, and it's a point you know I, I keep making that look, two thirds of Labour voters voted Remain. You know, the the vote. It's not I mean this big Leave vote in the old northern cities. You know, this big Labour Leave vote that is um, cost us so dearly. It was only ever you know a minority of our voters. It was at most a third of the total Labour vote nationally. So. It, this kind of image people have formed in their minds that kind of you know latte sipping metropolitan elites you know you know forced Jeremy Corbyn into betraying the sort of salt of the earth working class leave voters is really misleading. I mean the truth is that there were leave you know committed leave voters, including you know very you know poor people, including working class people, you know people of all ethnicities and backgrounds. You know, in the towns and cities up and down the country, who felt absolutely betrayed by seeing Labour, as they saw it, kind of you know making too many concessions to the project of Brexit, which they saw rightly or wrongly as having been historically really driven by the right-wing press, and Labour really just didn't have any choice but to to change its position. But of course, and there, there was no position on which it could win. So, yeah, it was, you know, it's that old joke. Yeah, about somebody going into the country and asking for directions and getting the response. Well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> I just think, you know, that's what. I mean, that is really where Labour was. I mean, really from the moment of 2017. And I think the thing that people really didn't take account of enough was that in 2017, look, Labour was able to go into the election saying, oh, yeah, we're going to do Brexit and yeah, free movement is going to end because. The, the negotiations hadn't started yet. So nobody knew what any of that really meant. And it was quite clear by 2019 that the Labour Party membership and a significant section of the Labour Party electorate was not going to tolerate uh, a, a, a Labour standing on a platform that ended free movement and was not going to really tolerate any actually existing possible Brexit. So, and I think there's a popular view amongst a, a lot of my sort of colleagues in the left commentariat that somehow you could have got a sort of soft Brexit compromise that kept free movement, that that kept us in the EU, kept us related to the EU on the same terms as Norway. But that completely ignores the, the, the totally predictable reaction of the kind of, you know, the UKIP right, you know, and the, and the press. I mean, the Sun and the Mail would have been screaming every single day that Labour's Brexit wasn't a real Brexit. And you know, it wouldn't have uh, addressed the issue at all. So I just don't think there was any way to win by that stage, really. And you know the, the message that the Conservatives had was that that politics is sort of broken and and doesn't work anymore, and that we just have to get this thing done. And and you know uh, one of the things that sort of read, read that you'd argued was that actually Labour needs to be arguing that the system is broken, <laughs> and it has been for quite some yeah. time. But how do Labour reclaim that message when that's now the Conservatives' message, a sort of populist message from Johnson? That's going to be quite a tricky fight isn't it to also be saying well we think it's broken too but in this far more complicated <laughs> way to communicate uh well yeah well you, you've summed it up and there's no immediate answer but I, you know well i think there is i mean you, i mean for a start you just have to start from that premise i mean there was always an easy line of attack against johnson but i know some of like jeremy's senior advisors wanted us to take much more clearly it was to say look he's just a tory he's not he's not some great populist hero He's a lifelong Tory. He was a member of the Bullington Club. Like he went to Eton. He, he spent his entire life like living in, inside the inner circles of the establishment. So it's very, very easy 
They're much more than it is even with somebody like Trump. It's, it would be very easy to undermine his claims, like to represent anything but a continuation of the historic establishment. But to do that first, indeed, you've got to come out and say the democratic system is totally broken. And and, and, um, and we've never had a Labour leadership say that. Like Jeremy never said it. I don't think Jeremy believed it, to be honest. I mean, I think that's part of the problem because Jeremy, Jeremy is very much in the tradition of Tony Benn, and although Tony Benn was a great advocate for for certain kinds of democratic reform, he was also, I, I've always thought, rather kind of sentimental and naive about, just from a socialist perspective, about how much you can get done through the kind of established, the kind of medieval institutions of parliamentary democracy. So, and the House of Commons. So, and I think Jeremy had a bit of that, really. I think he sort of did think that if we just get, and the people around him sort of seemed to think, well, if you just get, if we just get a Labour government elected with a majority in the House of Commons, uh, or even not with a majority, just, you know, uh, the biggest party, then we'll be able to implement our programme. So, I mean, the, answer, the short answer to the question, actually, is, is simply this. The short answer to the question is simply, you need a Labour leader to get up and give a speech saying, look, British parliamentary democracy has not worked since the mid-70s, because ever since the mid-1970s, people on the right and on the left have been voting for things and not getting any of what they wanted. Because actually, I mean, this is part of the story I always tell, which I think is accurate, about Britain since the 1970s. Is, you know, the people who voted for Thatcher in 79 weren't mostly voting because of their enthusiasm for privatising public services. They were voting, you know, out of a kind of socially conservative desire to, you know, slow down the pace of social change, to defend traditional family values, as they would have put it, to slow down immigration. And, and hardly any of that actually happened. Um, instead, what happened was, you know, a, a, the beginning of a massive, you know, a period of privatisation, of shifting power and wealth, you know, from the poor to the rich etc. And then most of the people who voted for Blair in 97, you know, thought they were voting for some kind of some sort of, you know, moderate restoration of, of social democracy. And instead, what they got mostly was they got a bit, they got a lot more spending on, on schools and hospitals, which was great, but also a sort of continuation of much of that programme. So we've had this situation for decades, where basically people don't, most people are, are, are not, no one has really voted for what we've actually got. And the situation clearly hasn't worked and it's resulted in you know, this crisis of Brexit. And we, we just need a Labour leader who's willing to get up and give a speech saying all that, basically. Um, and we have, we've never had one. So that would be the first thing. I mean, the first thing would be just to say that, to put it in those terms, to frame it in those historical terms. To, but also to make the sort of simple case, really, which Johnson would, was never able to make and wouldn't have been able to make, that look, democracy is supposed to be the process by which we get the country we want. And the question is, well, what kind of country do we want? And, um, and to some extent, you know, Brexit, I mean, the whole discourse of Brexit, on the one hand, it's sort I mean, it's a, the discourse of Brexit, if you talk to people who voted for Brexit and you ask them what kind of country they, they think they're going to get, you get two very distinctive answers. So, that, and there's one set of people who say, "I think we're going to rebuild the factories now. I think basically we're going to reverse deindustrialization." And you get another set of answers which are basically just racist. You know, we think we're going to get a white Britain. Yeah, we're going to end immigration and multiculturalism. And to some extent, they overlap, but to a large extent, they don't. And you know, and I think it could, it would have been quite easy. It should be quite easy to expose the differences there, and, and particularly to kind of expose the fact that the sort of belief that Brexit is somehow going to deliver reindustrialization is is just you know, based on nothing. But first, you, we would have to frame the question: Look, what 
what kind of country do we want and what are the institutions that we need to make sure we all have a say in that which is the basic question of democracy i think and instead we just sort of allowed we allowed you know brexit to be presented as sort of all things to, not all things to all people but at least two things to two distinct groups of people we and we allowed johnson and his supporters to get away without really ever explaining how exactly what is the mechanism by which you know just coming out of the eu is going to solve the fact that within britain the capacity of people actually to affect political outcomes feels like it's basically nothing like most of the time yeah well i was going to say it's also it's very hard isn't it in the you know the message to get brexit done and the sort of idea that brexit would do something was absolutely echoed everywhere by all news stations and, and tv as though we will end up with something great but as soon as for example there's a proposal for free broadband it was deemed completely bonkers <laughs> how dare you sort of propose something so mad that the future might be different so it's you know how i mean i i found it very interesting again one of the things that you wrote about was the the kind of limitations that labor has being a political party um you know and and what you kind of called laborism that there that almost the tribal need to stay within the party and not cooperate with others and not uh kind of bring a collective view together but i mean that's what's is that is that the only way that you'll kind of break this idea that there, uh, you know, another future is possible that isn't the one that that's echoed in uh, across the kind of main tabloids. Well, I think so. Yeah, I mean, my view is, I mean, you know, one of the things I've written about, it, one of the, my arguments is, yeah, Labour's not the only is not the only sort of institution in the country which suffers from you know being kind of the dominance of the tabloid press over <clears throat> parts of the culture. So all the other parties, apart from the Tories and and uh, the Brexit Party, UKIP, suffer. Yeah, they all we all don't get fair representation but also there's all kinds of organizations i mean you talk to most people who work in the charity sector or the ngo sector like they also are conscious that you know the tabloid press promotes this just evil kind of view of the world really in which it, people who are poor it's basically their fault you know they're scroungers that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be helping uh, you know, we shouldn't do any kind of overseas aid that we should treat refugees with a kind of, you know, we should be kind of sadistic towards refugees. And then they find that very frustrating. So it would be, you know, it should be possible to get together a, a much broader coalition than, than just the Labour Party, both of other parties, but also of other institutions, like other civil society agencies who are all, who all have in common. They, we might not all agree on what our ideal long-term destination would be after 50 years, but you get a great deal of consensus that at least over like a 10, 15 year period, what you want is yeah, me, yeah, you want some reform of the media, you want reform of the way our democracy works, you want a significant rebalancing of the economy away from finance and retail towards, you know, towards you know, you know, high tech manufacturing, you want a significant rebalancing regionally of the country, you want a significant redistribution of wealth from the richest to the poorest, you want to solve the housing crisis, you know, through rent controls and Building social housing, you get and, and and of course you obviously you you want to uh, move towards rapid and significant decarbonisation. You get a huge, you know, there's a whole all these different uh, all these different kind of organisations would all agree on that. But the history, the tradition of the Labour Party is that really you you think the Labour the election of a majority Labour government in the House of Commons is the is the solution to all problems and is the only objective to which you should be oriented and anything that compromises that is basically a problem and is part of the problem and constitutes some sort of you know something to which you should be opposed so you can't work with other political parties 
you don't really work with any kind of um, civil society institutions other than the trade unions. Um, and you and I think, yeah, and, I, and basically and it's just a simple fact that Labour and the unions are, are just too weak to actually realise those objectives on their own. I mean, it's just it's just it's just that simple, really. Yeah. And they always have been, frankly. They, I mean, there's only I mean, there hasn't been a Labour government elected with a clear, unambiguous majority that wasn't already, by the time it got elected, in the pockets of Rupert Murdoch and the big banks since 1966. I mean, you know, I mean, Blair, you know, we, well, I've just explained what I think happened with, with Blair. I mean, Blair got a big majority, but he got it by telling Rupert Murdoch that he that he could have a veto over the entire programme. So Murdoch backed him. And then, you know, it was it was Wilson in 66, which was the, you know, who called an election, you know, an opportunistic election at a, at a convenient moment in the in the kind of economic cycle when he was in government. And that's the last time. So, yeah, I think government, I think Labour really does. I think the only way of, of uh, overcoming the kind of huge obstacles to getting any kind of real progress in this country is for, is for as many of the different groups and organisations who want progress of any kind uh, to collaborate insofar as it's possible and to explore, you know, how far it could be possible. I don't know, it's seen so negatively, like coalitions um, in this country, whereas, you know, I always think of European governments and, uh, you know, I was a big fan of the Danish show Borgen, which I know people say was a centrist dream. That's not my view. I thought it was, br- I prob- I thought it was great. But, you know, <laughs> that, but like you, you watch those shows or, or, you, or reality where parties work together as part of a coalition government just as per normal, whereas here it's still seen as, you know, like something's broken, if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, it's completely anomalous, and it, it is a sort of real sort of. It's not even a British thing now; it's an English thing, you know. Because in Scotland and Wales, I mean, the Scottish and Welsh parliaments all, uh, all, all use proportional representation, and they've only ever had coalitions, apart from under very rare circumstances. I mean, now the SNP completely dominate the Scottish Parliament, but historically they've mostly been through coalitions. But it, it is this weird parochial kind of English exceptionalism. Uh, which you expect from the Tories, but the fact that it—that I mean, one of the big problems historically with the Labour Party, and one of the defining features with this phenomenon, you know, which we sometimes call Labourism, is the fact that although it thinks of itself as being like really radical and wanting to, you know, re- overturn the oppressive traditions of the British imperial state, in fact, it's it's deeply entrenched in the sort of English parochial imaginary, which sort of basically doesn't know that there's any other way to do things. And if it does hear that there's another way to do things, it doesn't really like the sound of it. Um, and yeah, it is a bit mad. I mean, because it's just, that is just what democracy looks like in most parts of the world. So, I mean, democracy looks like, you know, different, you know, having to do deals with people and having to form alliances and form coalitions. And this sort of fantasy that somehow you can just have a, uh, you know, you can, you have one party sort of doing everything is, is very problematic. I mean, I mean, there is something about how English people just don't like the idea of sort of factionalism or political conflict or political ideology at all, which is kind of quite strange. And I think you see it even inside the Labour Party. I mean, that you know, there are lots of people just don't like the idea that even inside the Labour Party there are different groups, there are different fat tendencies, there are right wing networks, there are left wing networks, and they sort of don't want to know about it. And they would, and they always say, "Well, why can't we all just unify?" And I think there's there is this sort of just na- general naivety about the idea that you know politics is always about negotiation. You know, it's always it's always about you know it's always about compromise, it's about negotiation, but it's also about leadership. 
I mean, the other side of it is, especially people on the left who are really kind of hostile to the idea of any sort of cooperation with any other parties except parties to the left of them. So it's, I mean, it's always the Liberal Democrats. You know, it's always when you suggest that we might have to cooperate with the Liberal Democrats, people, you know, people get really very, people get really upset. Um, and and partly it seems to betray this real lack of confidence. It's this idea that, well, well if you're the big, even if you're the biggest party and you're the ones who, um, you know, you're going to, even if you're the biggest party in a coalition, somehow like this little smaller party would just corrupt and taint you if you would try to collaborate with them and you, they would prevent you from doing anything uh, really radical. And I think there is part, I mean, part of it comes from this kind of the fact that, you know, the British left, people, the British left, especially the English left, you know, people have so little experience historically of winning anything or being in power that they, they can't quite get their heads around it. They can't get their heads around really a lot of people. You know, what would it actually look like to at least partially win something? You know, and what it usually, usually in politics, what it looks like to partially win something. Indeed, you've made some compromises, you've made some deals, you've made some alliances with people who at other times you might be fighting with, but you still manage to get enough of what you want that you can count it as a success. And I think people have got so, to some extent, we've got so little experience of actually sort of winning anything. The people don't really have their heads around what it would mean. So it just becomes in their imagination a sort of, and, and the assumption is, the default assumption is as soon as you enter into a relationship with anybody else, like, oh, you must, you've already lost. Yeah, it's sort of very similar to our attitude to international sports, isn't it? We just, we never win, but we have this kind of idea of what it I know, but it is, it is like that. It's like you never win, but you also, you never do the necessary thinking about what it would take to That's win. That's it, or show the correct that. support I mean, to get the winning there. It's always so negative and, and you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the support's always so angry and it's all their fault if they don't win. And you know, it's... I know, it is like that. It is, I mean, supporting Labour is a bit like supporting England. And it's also, I mean, this, you say, I would say this about, about England, look, you, we do know you can look around the world and see other see how countries organise their football and see how the thing all the things we don't do like it's not rocket science you know you put loads of money into it you don't you don't let the clubs you don't let the clubs you know all be owned by a handful of billionaires who just who have no interest whatsoever in supporting the national side and just you know and demand you know so much. Uh, from from players that they're not able to commit to the side. You get people to train as a team because that's the whole point of the sport. You know, you're not just an aggregation of individuals running around a pitch. You know, uh, it's not rocket science, but we just we don't do it because because I think and but I think I mean in the case of football, we don't do it because to do so would actually mean to to go against some quite entrenched sort of ideological ideas. You know, I mean, but. In the case of the Labour Party, you'd think that people would at least have a sort of institutional interest in 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 changing you know, the way we do things in order to win. But I mean, but there's there are some analogies there. I mean, because part of the pro- I mean, part of the problem is that you know within the Labour movement and the Labour Party, I mean, if you look at the people who sort of benefit from it and who benefit and have sort of power in it, well, I mean, you know, there are a whole lot of MPs, there are a whole lot of union bureaucrats. You know, just like there are also, you know, kind of centuries, you know, commentators, you know, for example, in the press and the media, all of whom are basically going to keep their jobs, uh, even if the Labour Party is in opposition forever. Uh, And it doesn't on some fundamental level. I'm not going to I don't think this is conscious in their minds, but I do think like consciously or otherwise, 
they don't really care that much if Labour ever wins or not. It's not the primary issue to them. The primary issue to them is maintaining their positions of authority, like within the sort of structures and the institutions um, and, with, and within the broader culture. And I think it's to some extent, it's, it's also true psychologically of a lot of activists. A lot of activists prefer to maintain their self-image as like, you know, at pure, you know, untainted kind of socialist activists than actually engage in the kind of sort of collaborative politics, you know, that it would be necessary to actually win anything. So part of, well, so it, it is interesting. I mean, I think you raise an interesting point actually, because that, you know, there's, it's that cliche about English narrative to sport that we like to lose. We don't, we don't really want to win. And there is something about that in, in, in there is something to that, I think, in this, in this problems on the left is that it's not, I'm not sure how many people really want to win because, because whenever I set all this stuff out to anybody and you know, have enough time as you can today to say it, the response is always, yeah, everything you're saying seems right. This seems obvious. This seems like what you'd want to do if you actually wanted to win. And you do, I do, one does find oneself wondering a lot of the time how, to what extent anybody, you know, people even really want to win. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we'll be back with Jeremy in a minute. But first, let's find out just... Oh, who are the people in your cabinet? In your cabinet. In your cabinet. Say, who are the people in your cabinet? In your cabinet. In your cabinet. Yes, the phrase only political enthusiasts or detectives interrogating a suspect about a very grisly series of serial murders get to ask. It's that time again to say, who are the people in your cabinet? 
That's right, some people you've never heard of before but didn't like are out. I mean, Chris Skidmore, anyone? Nope, but I bet he does. And they've been replaced by some more people you've never heard of but are still certain you won't like. Sure, you've read all the hot takes, op-ed, tweets, Facebook statuses and toilet graffiti, so you know that many of the new lot are fans of kissing Boris Bum. But is this a clever, devious plan from the Cummings and Johnson team? A double act who really sound like an awful Victorian porn show? Or is it just that this is all that's left from a very shallow pool of people who are hugely unqualified for the jobs that they're in? Let's take a look and see, kids! Replacing the Sage is new Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who in every photo looks like he can't wait to sell you life insurance. What do you need to know about the man in charge of the new budget that is due in mere days? Well, he's clearly been put in the government to help take it to the elites. You know, as he's an Oxford Uni, then Stanford Uni graduate, then worked for Goldman Sachs and then for the Children's Investment Fund Management. Which sounds nice, but is completely separate from the Children's Investment Fund Foundation and doesn't officially give any money to that. It's just a hedge fund that has children in the title, but likely has absolutely nothing to do with children unless they're employed to crawl through the tunnels to wherever their money is hidden in the Cayman Islands. And it is, at least some of it, as the billionaire that owns it, Chris Hone, has several links to companies with accounts there. Which is legal, of course. You know, it's just morally like taking a shit in a hospital reception. Sunak's associate, when he worked at the Nothing To Do With Children's Investment Fund Management, was Patrick DeGorsi, and he founded Thelemy Partners, which Sunak helped start up. It's named after the fictional hedonistic abbey in Francois Rebelais' Gargantua and Patagruel, where only attractive people were allowed into the abbey, and the motto was, Do what you want. Which is rather telling considering DeGorsi did some not-so-legal tax avoidance by using a film investment scheme and was ordered to pay £8 million of it back. Is it fair to blame Sunak for his friend's fuck-ups? Well, no, in the same way that it's not my fault that my friend Matt ate pizza from a bin that time. But when all your buds love the tax dodging, and then Sunak also happens to be married to a millionaire who's a daughter of a billionaire, and then he's all like, yeah, free ports are great, it's important not to be surprised when his budget has tax breaks for the rich, while you have to pay extra to breathe air or think about a dog. Apparently, Rishi has already told party colleagues that it's right to invest in what people care about, but it does kind of depend on which people he's thinking of, as if it's his friends and family, then they care about fuck monks and shitting on hospitals. He's only been an MP for five years, so getting to the cabinet this quick is amazing. I mean, if it wasn't that he's also been a supporter of Johnson's for two years, backing Brexit and the PM's leadership campaign, before then appearing at several debates instead of Johnson, after the Conservatives realised that a block of ice was more coherent and therefore dangerous. There is little to no chance that he'll do anything to challenge his boss, and number 10 and 11 sharing joint aids means that Sunak will likely be a glorified autocue reader when it comes to financial decisions for the country. So, Rishi Sunak is a sycophant, a toady, a lackey, and it remains to be seen if he can be more than that. In a tweet after he got his spanking new role, he said he had a shared mission to unite and level up the country. So, that's a no then. Working under Sunak in his old role as Chief Secretary to the Treasury is former Brexit Secretary Stephen Barclay, who... No, nope, sorry, nope, no, he's too forgettable. Uh, he looks like a blurry grey bit of paper, which... Blurriness, nope. Nope, sorry everyone, uh, try and look at him out of the corner of your eye or something. That might work. Uh, the new Culture Secretary is Oliver Dowden, who is suited to the role on account of looking like a one-man medley of different 90s ITV sitcom leads. Dowden became the MP for Hartsmere in 2015, where Elstree Studios are based and EastEnders is filmed, and so he has, in the past, referred to himself as the MP for Albert Square. All that this suggests to me is a wish to make working-class people suffer unnecessary and unrealistic, never-ending drama. It's never-ending drama. 
It's hard to say whether this means that Dowden actually has a fondness for the BBC in terms of decriminalising licence fee non-payment, which, if it happens, may well lead to questions over the licence fee's existence overall. But melted waxwork of Anne Robinson, John Whittingdale, is back in the Department of Culture too. And aside from his scandal involving a relationship with a sex worker where he lied about his job and said he was an arms dealer because somehow that's not as offensive as a Tory MP, Whittingdale is mostly well known for saying things like the demise of the BBC is a tempting prospect. On April the 1st, which seems appropriate, Oliver Dowden will receive the responses to the public consultation on the decriminalisation of the licence fee, and how he deals with that may give us a hint of where things might go next. And if he hands it all over to Whittingdale to deal with, then Auntie Beeb is definitely in trouble, as we know what's to come, because Whittingdale is very willing to pay for that sort of thing. Alok Sharma, a.k.a. a hedgehog in specs, is the new business secretary and head of the COP26 climate conference. The first bit of that makes sense, uh, in that Sharma, prior to becoming an MP for Reading West, was a chartered accountant, then a corporate finance advisor, in the sort of job escalation that says, I want everyone to avoid me at parties. It's the COP26 president bit, which is odd, and not least because it's partners with business, which hasn't really been the planet's best friend in the last 50 years. It's a bit like making someone the minister for hammer chucking, as well as the president of the precariously balanced egg safety association. Until Sharbo was made secretary for international development last summer, he has barely mentioned climate change ever. He only voted in favour of climate protection policies twice, and he was a supporter of the Heathrow expansion. But then, when he was in the Department for International Development, he called on the World Bank to put more investment into tackling climate change in developing countries and launched a UK aid package to protect a billion people in those countries from climate disasters. What I'm saying is, I have no clue. Maybe he'll be in the business of tackling climate change, or maybe, as is more expected with anyone on Johnson's team, he'll make climate change work for business. Scooby gear investment packages, anyone? Tax cuts for underwater HQs? Hmm? The new Environment Secretary is old child George Eustace, whose response to the flooding that's hit parts of England and Wales these last two weekends was, we can't protect everyone. Great, thanks George. I mean, I bet he's the sort of person that goes to festivals and immediately announces, well, we won't get to see all the bands. Yeah, we know George, just at least pretend to want to try. He's a former farmer, which might mean that he cares for the land and welfare of animals, or he might see a scorched earth as an easy way to a flame-grilled steak and a lot less field work to do. It's very hard to say. Well, it's not that hard to say, as he's rarely voted for policies that will tackle climate change. The only thing, in fact, he really did campaign very hard about was in 2012 against the government's proposed VAT extra on hot food, known as the pasty tax, which they then backed down on. Not sure why Eustace bothered saving the pasty, though, when he can't eat them all. Come on, George. The new Northern Ireland secretary is Brandon Lewis, a man who looks like a hobbit that was lured away from the Shire by a double-glazing sales opportunity. Lewis has worked his way through the Conservative Party from councillor to the cabinet, and its history includes claiming £31,000 of expenses for staying at a fancy hotel in London and voting against making homes fit for human habitation while also being a landlord. I've no idea why he's Northern Ireland minister other than that his predecessor, Julian Smith, was actually quite good at it, but was also quite leery towards Johnson, and so none of those things were allowed, so they've stuck this chump in to fit in line with everyone else in government being fucking clueless about what they do. I'm guessing that Lewis will help with divisions in Northern Ireland by just everyone uniting together so they don't have to talk to him very often. Who knows? Lastly, but not leastly, Suella Braverman is the Attorney General, which is a scary appointment due to her combination of being openly against the Human Rights Act, saying that courts have too much power, and using phrases like cultural Marxism, which is known as an anti-Semitic trope. And that she's also known for being completely incompetent and disingenuous. 
Stories range from working with Professor Steve Pearce on a report protecting EU citizens' rights after Brexit and then voting against it, or misrepresenting a legal judgment, or voting against investigations into claims of torture in the Iraq war. I mean, that all sounds great for the highest legal advisor in government, doesn't it? Does that mean she won't manage to completely change the court system, so like the US, judges are elected leading to all sorts of abuses of power? Or does it just mean that she'll do as she's told and not question any of it as that would hurt her brain? Braverman did practice as a barrister for 10 years before becoming an MP, which is impressive as most accounts from people who've worked with her over the years wouldn't trust her to make an Americano. <laughs> See what I did there? I confused barista and barrister. <laughs> Though based on a lot of stories, so would she. Uh, Braverman is, however, an ardent Brexiteer, ERG member and Johnson loyalist, much like Sunak, and that means as Attorney General, she probably won't be giving the government legal advice they don't want to hear, although that may just be because she won't understand which bits are which. So, uh, that plus trust Patel, Hancock, Rob and Gove, to name but a few of what collectively looks like a bomb exploded at Madame Tussauds, is a cabinet where all the power comes from the top. Uh, by that, I mean Dominic Cummings, or whatever kids' TV show he's watching at the time. Still, at least now we know what to expect, and when the BBC is reporting its own end, as half the country floods, judges are arrested for upholding the law, and Rishi Sunak has made it so millionaires are allowed to eat schools, at least we'll be able to say, ah well, told you so, and that's all that matters. And now, back to Jeremy. Um, so I suppose a big, a big question really is that, you know, if I don't know when the next election will be, we presume four to five years, maybe we'll see. Um, you know, do you, at the moment we've got four leadership possible candidates. I mean, do you see the chances of someone bringing everyone together, uniting and, and maybe doing some of the things that you've suggested? Or do you think that Brexit no longer being a thing will mean that, there's a greater chance of a Labour victory anyway. I mean, how do you see things going forward? Yeah, all I can say is at the moment is like if X happens, then Y will probably happen. I think there are, there's too many variables to make a sort of clear prediction. I mean, I can say that historically it would be very, very unusual for Labour to win the next election after what we've just been through, like after one cycle. But um, can the party unite somebody? Well, I mean, the leadership is all, I mean, can lead, I mean, the, it looks very unlikely that the next leader isn't going to be Keir Starmer now. I mean, I don't want to kind of rule out anybody else's chances, but statistically, it's not looking really. I mean, right, looking at the level of CLP nominations, it's just not looking, constituency Labour Party nominations, it's not looking plausible that anybody else could win, um, whatever, you know, my preferences might be. And then we are going to be in a really interesting situation because we're going to be in a situation where the kind of real sort of the sort of activist base of the party, which is more, which is more sort of pro Corbynite and its main organisation, Momentum, which all came into existence to sort of defend Corbyn as the leader of the party, is going to not be. They're not going to have their candidate as leader of the party, and um, I don't think that scenario is as dangerous as, as some people might think because they because I think they, those groups and organizations are very different from say the, the far left of the 80s when things became very divisive in the party I think there is a possible scenario actually in which you in which there's a sort of you know truce at least between you know a leader like Starmer and, and a sort of organizations like momentum and they don't sort of fight each other and it could be quite a powerful combination actually to have a sort of apparently sort of moderate, sort of electable, you know, media-friendly, centrist-friendly leader, but still having a kind of highly mobilised sort of activist network who's able to sort of go and campaign on the ground. So that could work quite well. But 
ultimately, you know, my analysis is and always has been that Labour cannot get elected under first past the post on a progressive programme. Like it either adopts a programme to the right of anything the current membership will tolerate, um, like Blair did, uh, or it you know, accepts the need for some sort of just, you know, if only kind of very short term, very limited sort of electoral, you know, elect arrangements with other parties like the Liberal Democrats, where, you know, where, for example, you know, there's hundreds of seats, but Labour is never, ever going to win. The Lib Dems are in second place and we, you know, we could not run in some of those seats where local members are happy with that and vice versa. Now, as happened, you know, um, um, get an election now. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of the current candidates are of any interest in any of that kind of arrangement. But the one thing that I think is going to happen along those lines is there will, I mean, there is now massive support for a shift of proportional representation amongst the membership. You know, the polls are showing over 75%. So the stuff I'm saying, although a lot of activists think it's a bit crazy, I think is, is interesting. I think a lot of what I've been saying today is just common sense to a lot of ordinary Labour members and supporters now. So there will be motions to conference calling for the party to adopt proportional representation as a policy. Like by the, they definitely will be this September, and uh, I, I can't see how the pressure for us to adopt it as a policy can be resisted, whatever the personal views of the leaderships. Uh, once that happens, once the party has said, okay, you know, we're committed to reforming the voting system, well, then you're into quite an interesting situation because then. You've also got you said then Labour is saying, look, our voting system doesn't work and it's not fair. And, and you've also got a bunch of other parties, including Greens, the SNP, Black Cymru and the Liberal Democrats, who've also, also all already got that as part of their programme. And then, you know, it becomes quite ir irrational not to just say, all right, well, if we've all admitted that the voting system doesn't work and it, it, it disadvantages all of us, we're all committed to changing it. Well, I mean, maybe, you know, it makes very little sense to sort of refuse any idea of cooperating, if only for one election, if only to get reform of the voting system. So I think there is a, I think there is a reasonable chance. Um, I think there is a reasonable chance. Um, in terms of if that doesn't happen, you know, is there any chance of actually Labour victory? Um, well, I mean, I would say it, it, it's it part a lot will, you know, it's a cliche of politics in Britain that governments don't, oppositions don't win elections, but governments lose them. And a lot will a lot will depend on, on Johnson and what he's able to do and, and how he's able to sort of prosecute his project. And I think, I do think Johnson wants to pursue a programme, which is the one that Trump should have tried to pursue, um, which is genuinely to mark a break with the sort of 40 years of, you know, free, you know, sort of aggressive free market economics to uh, to end the kind of, you know, to kind of increase public investment a bit, increase a bit of investment in public services, to um, to really to try to kind of maintain the support of those sort of leave voting, sort of working class voters that he got for the him, he and Theresa May, you know, sort of built up uh, over the past few years. Um, I mean, whether he'll, he's going to be able to do that, I just don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. I, um, I don't because there will be pressure on him to do other things. There'll be pressure on him to cut taxes. There'll be pressure on it from him from his, what is still his core base, which is you know wealthy, affluent, you know, property owners in the south of England. It's also the case that. You know, I mean, the the people who shifted, it might be the case that the people who shifted from Tory to Labour over leave, indeed, are not very strongly pro-Tory, that they were only kind of borrowed votes. And that, I mean, one of the things to clarify here is that 
there's kind of there were kind of two things going on to some extent with that shift in votes. I mean, for one, I mean, one of the things is that there weren't that many votes. There weren't that many people shifting from Tory to Labour. There were people shifting from Labour to other to Greens and Lib Dems in just as big numbers because they were all everybody was annoyed about Brexit. There were some people vote, going from Tory to Labour. There were people who voted Labour in 2017 who didn't vote at all. And there was also, but there is also a long-term trend in all those of people who are in those so-called heartland constituencies who are getting older, who are ret- they're mostly retired, they mostly paid off their mortgages. And they just, they're not really interested. They have no interest in the things the Labour government would offer. They don't really care whether there are jobs for people because they're not working anymore. They don't really care if there are houses for people because they've got their house, you know. Um, and and those people have been shifting Tory for like for, for 30 years, like, you know, over time. So, um, so those people have sort of gone Tory and are never coming back. But most of them, you know, were going Tory anyway, like Brexit or no Brexit. And... Then there's a there's a kind of small, much smaller constituency of people uh, who are kind of working age people in those places who really who voted leave and who are really hoping Brexit is going to improve their economic circumstances um, and voted Tory this one time. And I guess thinking about it, it is very unlikely that Johnson is going to be able to do anything substantial to improve their situation because they are people in these very in very poor towns. People who didn't, you know, not mostly people who didn't go to university, but are struggling to kind of, you know, raise a family, and you would need major kind of social and economic reform to really help those people. And Johnson clearly not going to do that. So, so there are reasons to think, you know, the conditions might be good for a Labour victory. But of course, you know, the argument against that is just all the things we've already talked about. I mean, the fact that the Tories still can completely control the media and they have an electoral system in which it doesn't really matter. You know, Labour could Labour could increase its vote share by five or six percent, you know, and they would still win. A, the Tories would still win a majority. I mean, Labour would have to get a swing that would be to win under the current electoral system for the next election. Labour would have to get a swing. Um, higher than it's ever been achieved in between any two par- two parliaments um, ever. So I don't think so. It's with, without some radical change of strategy, you know. Uh, however likable Keir Starmer may be to swing voters, it's entirely unlikely to happen. Wow, good optimism. Good, that's what we want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I one. I mean, this is another variable. Uh, as you said, this is all it all depend on various other things. But you know, um, in the US, should the Bernie movement be successful? And we don't know yet. But the sort of Iowa caucus is very interesting, and you know, it's it's obviously a very powerful campaign. Um, do you think? that uh that that would change how things are seen here or do you think that you know at least the the way in which the campaign is working might be uh a way that labor might look towards how to do things well i think the answer to all that is yes and also i mean a point i made in in a couple of like a long article i wrote when corbyn first got elected which i think is quite a powerful point that i I don't really know how to explain is that labor has only ever won uh, election significantly when there was a Democrat in the White House. Um, and, and Labour has, I mean, the 45 Labour government, which is one of the, you know, <coughs> you know, 
you know, Labour is understandably, everybody in Labour is always obsessed with how did we actually get a progressive government out of, you know, the wartime experience in 45. And, and part of it is just that we were in the government. I mean, people always forget this. We were, Labour was basically running the country because Churchill was leading a, a government of national unity and the Tories were mainly concerned with uh, foreign policy and fighting the war. So Labour had basically been running the country for five years already. So, but also part of that condition was, well, you know, you have the New Deal administration in the United States. The Democrats, with their, the most left-wing programme they'd ever had, had been in had been in government continuously for nearly fifteen years, for like almost fifteen years, and they were very, very supportive of of Western European governments implementing sort of social democratic policies. So, you know, not, I mean, the the New Demo, you know, the Roosevelt got elected in. Um, you know, 1932, you know, during the height of the Depression, when when, lay, when the, this country, we were still electing, you know, Baldwin and the Liberals, you know, who, who kept, who had as part of their ideology, the idea that basically governments can't do anything about unemployment. Um, so then in 1960, then in 19, we don't get, then 64, Wilson gets elected and re-elected in 66. That's when you know, Kennedy is already in the White House, and then Johnson has been implementing the, the Great Society program again. You know, the other great you know extension of uh, the welfare state in America after the New Deal. Then Blair only gets elected in ninety seven. You know, only gets elected after Clinton has been in like for a, for a term already. And exactly what the mechanisms are, you know, we could we'd have to speculate about. But I don't think I don't think it is pure coincidence because the sort of the parallelisms with British and American politics are often so incredibly close, you know, in the, in the, you know, in the mid, in the late seventies, we have weak ineffectual governments, the center left, you know, both lead, unable to manage the crisis, you know, Carter in America, you know, the Callahan government here, they're both replaced by the, the great governments of the new right, Thatcher and Reagan. Then after Thatcher and Reagan, even you get this parallel that everybody thinks that the, the right wing are going to lose, and instead they win. George W. Bush and John Major, these really parallel figures, these quite uncharismatic figures, who both only last for one term in office. Then they're replaced by kind of new Labour, new Democrats, or third way centrists in Clinton and Blair. So the parallels are always really striking. And it's nearly always the case that actually America is like a few years ahead of us in kind of changing direction or moving cycles. So yeah, I think it would. I think if Bernie was to win, it, I do think it would change everything here. And I think it would be highly likely. I would have to say, um, yeah, I, I would ex I would probably expect, if Bernie wins, I would probably put money on a Labour government next time. And I think it would it would certainly, because I think what would happen is it would certainly embolden Starmer, for example. Um, and it would just, and I think, I mean, I can speculate, I mean, I think, to, I mean, clearly, I think one of the, one of the reasons for that, those relationships is I think America does kind of loom so large in people's view of the world that, you know, when America goes left, it does convince a section of the British public who aren't otherwise convinced that, that it is possible. You can do that. That can happen. And I think, so yeah, I think it would, 
I think it will have a really uh, dramatic effect, actually. The same with popular culture. We always we always follow America for all these sorts of things. Isn't it? Um, thanks so much uh, for your time, Jeremy. It's really appreciated. And I just the last question, which is what I ask all guests on this podcast, um, with sort of the view to expand knowledge and, and resources, really. But apart from yourself and your book and your Twitter and your articles, um, who would you recommend that podcast listeners also check out, um, read up on? Who are your go-to commentators or campaigns? What are your what are your recommendations um okay well um in terms of other people kind of commentating and writing um uh my friend keir milburn you know he's been right has been writing over the past year or so about kind of generational shifts in politics which is a really important part of what's going on i mean the kind of generational split of the election was, was really sort of shocking um, you know, the way, I mean, the vast majority of people over 60 voted Tory and the vast majority of people under 40 didn't. Um, there's, um, I, I think um, people who've been writing, who've been doing really good commentary after the election include uh, James Butler of uh, Navarra Media, uh, had a really good piece in the London Review of Books recently, uh, Richard Seymour, kind of writes in various places on online. Um I think uh, those are all, I feel bad like any uh, mentioning men. If, you, if you're just thinking in terms of mainstream politics and that, um, that's what often happens. Um, I think uh, Foster, there's always very good to read. Uh, James Meadway, Neil Lawson, they're also names to look out for, uh, always writing good commentary. Um, so, and I think, and um, yeah, I mean that's probably. I think in terms of commentators and sort of people, who, people who are sort of looking at sort of British politics at the present time. I think um, uh, I think those are good. And also, yeah, Red Pepper magazine actually, edited by Hilary Wayman. Let's give a little plug to Red Pepper. It doesn't get enough attention. It's a sort of quarterly sort of independent left magazine. It's been going for sort of decades now, but they've really upped their game recently in terms of the quality content and analysis so i would say i'm probably probably the one apart from open democracy where they, the series of articles we've been talking about appears red pepper is probably the place where you would get the, the kind of sort of a, the kind of political analysis i've been making today like most frequently it was great talking with Jeremy. Um, you can find his articles about why Labour lost the election at opendemocracy.net and his very recently released book, 21st Century Socialism, uh, which got a lovely review in The Guardian the other day, um, is available in all them bookhouses. Uh, you can find Jeremy on Twitter at Jem Gilbert, J-E-M Gilbert, and his website is jeremygilbert.org. I'll pop links to all those things in the pod blurb because I am a good boy. Um, and thanks to excellent pod helper Cat Day. Uh, they'll all end up on the website soon too. Who else should I talk to for the podcast? What else should I talk to someone about? When else should I do it? Uh, no way, I'll sort that last bit out as I'm not showing you my diary or you'll find out all about my secret meetings. Um, but you can let me know about the other two uh, by dropping me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not graffiti your recommendations on a Banksy piece somewhere in Bristol? And as all the newspapers tried to work out whether graffitiing over graffiti is vandalism or art, because it's really confusing for them, I won't see a message as they'll keep blurring it out in pics, and I'll just assume it said wankers and ignore it. As always, probably just best to email, isn't it? <laughs> 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And once again, here we are, team listen all the way to the end. Hmm, I need a better name for you than that, don't I? Team Endure. Team Let It Play on Silent while you did something else. We'll get there. Um, Any suggestions, please send them in. And your reward this week for sticking to the end, some secret political insight just for you. This is secret. This is top secret stuff, like proper from, you know, sources, unknown sources. Okay, so, Douglas Heard, yeah? But what did he hear? Douglas Heard this. There you go. So I bet you're glad you stuck with that this week, eh? Pretty secret top-level stuff. Uh, More treats next week for your parpol completists. No, that also doesn't really make sense. Um, And don't forget, if you do enjoy this show, please don't keep it a secret like Douglas did. Spread the word, not like the herd. I'm never saying that again. And also give it a review on your podcast apps, maybe even a chuck me a pound or several thousand at the Kofi or Patreon. Big thankings to Acast for Podhousing, The Last Skeptic for Music Happy Times, Cat Day for the linear liner notes on the website, and Mushy Bees for all the pretty pics. This will be back next week when the government reveals its eugenics rollout has been happening for years, but as the Prime Minister has no idea who or where his kids are, it's impossible to check the results. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Sajid Javid's Principles, a card game for all the family where you have to guess just whether the former Chancellor would care about a moral dilemma or not. UK steel industry collapsing? No, you lose! He's on holiday in Australia. People being deported despite being British citizens? No, silly, even though it could have happened to his dad. He doesn't care. Not allowed his own special clever friends at work? Boo, that's bang out of order and you've just been sadged. Recommended retail price of more expensive than whatever it was you were promised. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.